When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply with the one and only Roger Williams, who has brought a copy of the book that I have been directly threatening my audience with, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. It is on the screen now. If you're listening, then you are a subhuman. You should be watching. <laughs> and you can see The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. It's available on Lulu. Don't worry about it because that link's in the description. Just buy it there instead of Amazon because it gives Roger more money and gives Bezos less money, which is a win-win. And because we need Roger to be a spacefaring billionaire, because at least he writes about it with a passion, unlike Jeff Bezos, who just does it because he's a dick and his rockets look like dicks and he's bald and Roger has a beautiful editor. Yeah. Fuck you, Jeff Bezos. If you would like to come on the podcast, I'll absolutely delete this episode. And uh, I will even sever ties with Roger in perpetuity. I'll pretend I don't know him. I'll fucking I will turn I will turn down That's everyone. A, it was nice knowing it you. It was. Tommy. I will absolutely be corrupted. I will absolutely be turned. I will everything. But um, and I will not blame you at all. Thank you. It will go with it, go it, go with go where fate takes you, dude. And, do, it, do what you have to do. And if by fate you mean two hundred billion, then yes, I will go where fate takes me. That great, that nine, <laughs> that, that those ten figures of fate, right? It's uh, but Roger Williams on here to do another reading of uh, this will be for the podcast. It will be curators part nine, and today yes. is Sunday, December nineteenth, twenty twenty one. This will be starting this this Wednesday, the twenty second. Will be the uh, last podcast of this year and we will resume in the first week of January for everybody listening so this is episode 650 so we'll, I don't know probably two I'd say I'll do three more I'll probably do seven more and so but not that anybody yeah. gives a fuck but so it'll be wrapping up on Wednesday and resuming two weeks later just so you know yeah. and this will be I, yeah. yeah I won't be available the Sunday after New Year's so for us, the earliest date would be the, what is that? Uh, we don't, we the don't, ninth. we don't need the a, ninth. we don't need to know dates, Roger, because we just do Sundays. Dates are irrelevant. Months and years yeah. have become irrelevant to Roger and I. It's, well, Sundays have numbers attached to them. So it's helpful to see which Sunday it they is. Do. You know, what's weird. It, wait, we did our first podcast in 2020. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it was 2021. No, it was we're, we're going into our third year of podcast, our third calendar year of podcasting. Yeah, it's our third calendar year, but third I think calendar it was. Year. We're going to the beginning of the third calendar year, but we're not in the third like we're actual not even in the second year. Yeah, we haven't hit two years yet because you were like we're pretty close though. I think I think you were like spring or early summer of 2020. Yeah, well, it was right around the time the pandemic was really starting to be, yeah, and, and everything was going to shit in the handbasket. So that was that was around like March, April, or something like that of twenty twenty. What's weird is the first episode of this podcast was based around. I wonder what's going to happen to the Hong Kong protests, and then very quickly it was like, huh, this virus is convenient. 
little did I know. Yeah. And so it wasn't that long. I was like, it was, was, well, I want to say the, my first, uh, cast with you, it wasn't a two digit number. No, you were in the one hundreds, but it was the low one hundreds. Because episode two hundred one was the Wu episode, we had already done. Yeah, so we had we had been we had been doing quite. No, it was in the low one hundreds. So yeah, you got a, uh, you got a good yeah, we, ticket you, number. <laughs> now, now for the eventual trials that this podcast will lead to, your that will be an indictment of you. You had an early. Oh yes. you had an early Nazi. But Mr. Williams, you were a. Uh, Episode one forty one. So you weren't even on the bandwagon. You're a true believer, and you're just mm. you know just nod and say something in German. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> on that note, as we slowly have within two minutes devolved <laughs> into talking about Roger and I's trial at, at the Nur- New Nuremberg, which will have nothing to do with medicine, but rather just this podcast and the trouble it's got me into and the good things it's got me into. And all that good because nothing, because nothing bad is going to happen in the future. Not, yeah, no, nothing bad. Fuck it, I don't, I don't, I don't give a shit if anything bad happens. I don't give a fuck. I've had thirty-one great years. I don't give a fuck. It. I truly don't care anymore. I just, I don't care anymore. But let's try to reel that nihilism in, and because that's not what this episode's about. As I can feel my heart rate rising, I'm like, you know what? And it's like, ba 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 ba. Hey, Christmas cheer. Tell me. Come down, come down, bring come it, down. Bring it back down, Tommy. Bring it, bring it back down. Well, that's why I have Dale on here, so he and I can start screaming. It's our own therapy with each other. It's not what this is. It's December. Yeah, Christmas. That, is you in, don't do that with me. You do that with him. See, Christmas the, is in a is less than a week. It's there's fucking Christmas cheer in the air. Just, and all of my fucking radio stations are playing Christmas music all the time. Well, Roger, it is Christmas time. Fuck that. Well, no, I, I don't listen to a I don't listen to a pop rock station to hear nothing but Christmas music all the fucking time. You're just getting your indoctrination since the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, that is bad. Oh wait, no, 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 I misspoke. It was the yeah. other station. It was it was it was the uh, country station that was the day after Thanksgiving. The pop rock station since, since the day after Halloween. Well, that's that's criminal, and frankly, I think I don't even think that falls under U.S. code. I think that's military tribunals in Guantanamo <laughs> Bay. That's some fucking that's some waterboarding. That's uh, electric. That's airstrikes and send Dale in. No, that's because that's too that's that's too that's too sanitized. <laughs> I'm talking electrodes on nipples in Guantanamo Bay. I mean, well, it's, it's like, you know, it's not that I dislike Christmas music sure. that much, but uh, ex- expecting me to spend a sixth of the year listening to the same 150 songs over and over and over and over and over and over and over again uh, is not really kind of why I am giving their advertisers my ears. So it's like, uh, I mean, I have heard Vince Valiant's All I Want for Christmas is You every single day for the last two months. And I don't even listen to the radio all that much. Maybe about 45 minutes a day total while I'm commuting. Vince Valley, <laughs> that makes me think of 
If you're and I like that song when I'm not hearing it every goddamn day. <laughs> have you ever heard? Oh, we'll get into the reading in a second. But have you ever heard the <laughs> the name uh, Val Valiant Thor? And it was it's uh it's kind of in it's kind of in like the lore of Area 51 that there was like an alien that took on a human form and like helped out the Eisenhower administration. And ha- I mean, it's all complete horseshit. I mean, like, I, however, <laughs> I've always liked the name Val Valiant Thor. And it's this guy that apparently yeah. has a 1400 IQ and helped Eisenhower. I mean, it's all horseshit. As I'm wearing my Area 51 hoodie and I'm trying to like brush off my interest yeah. in this. I'm like, it's just some stupid, like as I'm literally wearing the yeah. newspaper. It has absolutely clothing. nothing to do with the Bob Lazar shirt. Absolutely you know, not. Anything. But that was his name is Val Valley and Thor. And uh, yeah, no, Vince, Vince, Vince Vance is a guy he's in, in concert. I saw him in person in concert back in the nineties. He did casino magic in Bay St. Louis a few times. And he has this stick that he does where he, he has his hair made up where it sticks up in this column, like about a, all over his head and he credits his hairstylist with creating this effect and it's just and he's he's crazy in person well it's like i remember one of the things that he did in one of it was like he he, he wanted to do a gag he was in show he was in persona and all and there's a waitress trying to deliver a couple of beers to a client you know who had ordered them in the audience and he just runs up and takes the beers off of her tray. And she's like, what? what? <laughs> he just like, goes back up to the stage and says, hey, who's on some beer? That's, that's, <laughs> just, just, just justify alcoholism. I'm the entertainer. It's mine. If I do that, yeah. they call the cops. Um, yeah. But, but if you're the, but, but, but if you're, if you're the act, then you get away. I guess they, uh, they have a clause or something. On a on a less cute note, Sam Kinison, the comedian, rest in peace, used to walk through the crowd, or not used to. One time, he he walked through the crowd like really quietly, and he was wearing a trench coat. And he goes, "How do you not know that I don't have two sawed-off shotguns right now? How do you not know? What if I just start shooting?" And like one by one, people started leaving. This was like early nineties, and uh, eventually, I think like like seventy five percent of like the room left. He was just doing this for twenty minutes. He's like, "How do you not fucking know?" I'm gonna what? I'm a, I'm a stand up comedian. Been doing this shit for ten years. Ex cocaine addict. Like, you know, I'm not all. I'm not all there. What do you know? Maybe it's my hands. Maybe it's a sod off. What? Do you, and like one by one, people started leaving. And then he went up to the like the stage and just did a show. <laughs> but uh, just yeah. So not that that's as nearly uh, family friendly as grabbing a beer off the platter. But we're gonna get to today's reading because it's. It's already six thirty my time. Um, yes, but and uh, but and uh, we've got uh, seven episodes, which yeah. will close out book one of the curators, which will be a nice tidy conclusion for twenty twenty one, and we can have our little break for the end of the year and get to the rest of it for the new year. Fuck yeah. So let me rearrange my windows. And so this is going to be episode nine by your numbering. But we are going to start with part 44 as it was originally published on Reddit. And as you'll remember, the last thing that happened is uh, M 
our uh, fighter pilot, spaceship pilot heroine uh, had her spaceship blow out on her. And everyone thought she was dead. But then it turned out no one, including her or Jay, her uh, husband, remembered that, oh, by the way, yeah, when they were given the witnesses uh, semi-immortality treatment, part of that was vacuum defenses. So that the most common, you know, environment in the universe, environmental condition in the universe wouldn't kill you in 15 seconds. So. After our heart to heart with the curator, M's humor improved considerably. And a week later, we returned to the shipworks to begin taking apart the plausible part and figuring out how to arrange its systems within a six meter diameter sphere. It helped that the plausible itself was something of a repurposed hack. Its space systems installed in the hull of an airplane that had never been meant to fly in space and whose control systems had originally been much more complicated. We made up a list, and as M continued the work, the human form curator took me to the human colony world of Providence to go shopping. He cautioned me strongly against trying for Earth, since nothing we needed was very esoteric, and the curators were pretty sure that Earth's defenses were now capable of monitoring their movements. Earth's defenders seemed to be aware of the curator presence, and so far were being quietly tolerant, but neither side was very sure just what the other could do and it had turned into more of a game of poker than the curators were used to playing. He took my hand, and without fanfare, the landscape changed. As usual, we had arrived in a corner where nobody could see us appear from thin air off a side street in the busy capital of Providence City. That just doesn't feel like space travel, I said as we walked out onto the sidewalk. It took us a few hundred million years to perfect, he said. My first visit was to a hardware store where we stocked up on rolls of wire and different colors and gauges, splices and fasteners and pipe fittings and air hardware. We arranged for it to be put on a pallet and rented a ground truck to pick it up. The curator insisted on paying for it since his funds would not be traced back to me or M. I then drove the truck to a climate control service provider to buy gasket material and then to a flooring specialist to buy rubber mat flooring and adhesive. How much stuff can we safely get, I asked as I eyed the pallet of floor mats. Far more than would fit on this vehicle. With the amplifier, I could bring a small asteroid back to Prometheus. Before we left, he said we needed to make a social call. We left the truck in a parking garage and he folded us several hundred miles to an apartment block on one of Providence's smaller cities. I rang the bell on apartment 326 and was a bit shocked when our old nemesis Q answered the door. I see the curators are up to their old tricks, he said as he offered us to stand. What tricks are those, I asked as I shook his hand warily. Ham-fisted diplomacy, of course. I'm glad to see you, but I would be surprised if you said the same of me. Bygones must eventually become bygones, the curator said. Hugh invited us into his modest flat. I somehow doubt M will ever see it that way, Hugh said. The curator produced a brown bag, which I knew he had not had when we folded to the apartment, which turned out to contain a fifth of Crown Royal. On reflection, the crown seemed a bit downscale for his taste until I saw that it was a hundred years old. I can't speak for her, but I can say I'm a little surprised that you aren't living it up more. 
When you met me, I had a philosophy of live far, die young, and leave a pretty corpse. And it took a while after what the witnesses did to me to realize how inappropriate that is now. I didn't realize it in time to save my friends, including the one you killed. Actually, too, my girlfriend and her other lover, who had also been my friend. I had always known that other people experienced feelings of regret and shame and loss, but I had never felt them myself before. I couldn't figure out why it hurt so much. I spent months carrying a loaded gun in case the pain became too unbearable. The only reason I didn't kill myself was I knew I was the last of our group to receive the witness's curse. And I had to prove to humans could handle it. I couldn't be the coward who proved that we can't really be immortal. That would be very moving coming from someone with a different history. He snorted. Oh, yes, that's part of my curse, too. I was a sociopath, and I know why nobody can trust me. The funny thing is that I was much better at faking feelings before the witnesses cured me since I didn't get distracted by real feelings. You found shot glasses, and we clinked them before tossing back around. How did the two of you get hooked up, I asked. The witnesses asked me to protect him from his former employers, the curator said. He's had to move every few years to keep ahead of them. You could just move to some forgotten place out in the galaxy, I suggested. I could, but then what would I do? Here I can do charity work and help other people. Even in the colonies with the nanite economy of plenty, we managed to have poor and mentally ill people who can't care for themselves. I'd go to Earth where it's even worse and there's far more need if I thought I'd last more than a few minutes before being captured. An hour later, we folded back to the truck. What's going to happen to him, I asked. That largely depends on him, the curator said. Then we joined hands and folded back to the shipworks on Prometheus with our wares. The owners of the truck would easily find it as it carried a radio tracking device and our payment had included a deposit to cover its recovery. M was not happy. These aren't the splices I asked for, she said. I gave you part numbers. I wanted gel splices. They aren't made anymore, I explained, as the hardware guy had explained to me. When you push the button, these grow copious metal spikes right through the insulation to electrically bond with the wires, even if you don't strip them. And then the whole mass hardens like epoxy in a chemical reaction that leaves it waterproof and fireproof. These were developed for space systems and just got so cheap everyone uses them now. We'll see, she said, taking a handful back to the workbench where I knew she'd give them a hard testing. The plausible didn't have nearly as much wire in it as a Learjet, but it still had a couple of miles and hundreds of critical runs, and nobody even knew what I was talking about when I asked for a soldering iron. While we were arguing about wire splices, the gift of guidance returned with a gift of its own. The Prometheans had already blown the spherical glass hull of our new ship, and with their supergravity field extended to encompass it, they were delicately landing it at the work area, a few hundred meters from our shop. This being a much smaller project, with their experience blowing the gift hull, they had gotten it hours right on the first try. Part 45 the Prometheans were actually building their third supergravity drive as we set to work getting cutting the plausible deniability and figuring out how to arrange its components in the new spherical hull. 
The first Promethean supergravity drive powered the open space sled, which they used to conduct glass blowing operations in space. They had plans to eventually replace it with a hybrid ship with a small hull like ours, but they had chosen to use our ship as a learning opportunity before taking apart a tool that had been working for them. They were, of course, also working on their first fold drive, but it was still in early stages and not expected to be ready for several years. Their construction method was less compact and slower than our human methods, but it did not require such a vast industrial infrastructure and provided for incremental testing so the defects could be corrected as the drive took shape instead of just ruining the whole thing when it was tested all up. Our new ship would have two levels, established by a deck that bisected the six-meter diameter spherical glass hull. The upper deck would be the main living quarters and working area, having an area of about 30 square meters, about the same as the plausible. The lower deck would actually be very small, but would be surrounded by instrumentation hanging from the perimeter of the deck above. The airlock also opened into the engineering deck, and there was a small hatch cut into the deck at the perimeter for moving between the two spaces. At the center of the upper deck was this padded bench, which would contain the fold and supergravity drives so that they could be centered within the volume of the hull. We arranged all the salvaged components in a rough circle and tried to figure out the optimal arrangement for cabling. The Prometheans had also thought to cut us a hole in the hull for cables to run outside. They hadn't bothered in their own ship, but they knew that the sunlight cannon was in our ship, and operating that through the hull would not be a good idea. How did you guys ever think of that, Em asked, when she realized that they had anticipated our weaponry. How do you think we melt the glass to blow it into a sphere? Our supergravity drive can be retuned for other massless particles and essentially becomes a sunlight cannon, although the way we focus it, it's more of a sunlight furnace. This is also why we haven't moved to put a hole in our development sled yet, since we're not sure how to best arrange things so we can still use the drive both ways. After Em announced that your tests were good and the crystal and metal epoxy splices really were an improvement on our old technology, we set about making wiring harnesses to hook everything up. We located the main drive console on the upper deck. The deck was glass, but it wouldn't be transparent because of the gravity plating of floor mats. It took six months to get everything ready, but then it only took a couple of weeks to actually outfit the ship, since it was mainly a matter of strapping things in place and plugging them in. I had to go back to the colonies with our curator to pick up a vacuum pump so we could evacuate the airlock without losing its air to space when we opened it. We also salvaged the pressure bottles from the plausible in the end, there was plenty of room for everything, and even the lower engineering deck didn't feel overcrowded. The glassmaster assured us that it would be safe to christen our ship in human tradition as long as we used a relatively thin-walled and unhardened bottle of wine. She showed us hundreds of models that she had made to test different ways of tempering the hull. Our hull was about 12 centimeters thick, and we were advised that it was strongest away from the airlock, which put some complicated patterns in the hardening stresses. So what are you going to name it, she asked me. Before I could answer, Em interrupted, I'm claiming the right to name this one. Jay has named everything else. That's fair enough, I said. We tested everything as much as we could on the ground and at low altitude including a three-atmosphere pressure test. 
The Prometheans hadn't bothered to do such a test on the gift of guidance, but they were extremely confident in the strength of their glasswork. Em reminded them that she had once been extremely confident in the strength of the plausible soul, too, and we did the test. Finally, everyone gathered at sunrise, and the Prometheans offered Em a specially made thin-walled bottle of white wine. I call this ship the implausible alibi, she announced and she smashed the bottle against the hull just above the stubby muzzle of the sunlight cannon. The glassmaster and the human curator accompanied us on our shakedown test. The glassmaster was best equipped to identify any problems with the hull once we were in space, and the curator was best equipped to rescue us if something went horribly wrong. As we passed into the shadow of Prometheus, the stars came out. Oh my God, M gasped. I know you tried to tell me, Jay, but this is really amazing. It is, isn't it? The glassmaster agreed. I've been out on the gift a couple of times, and after seeing the universe from one of these spheres, who would ever be satisfied with windows again? After a couple of hours recalibrating the drives, we folded out to the gas giant where M's accident had occurred, then visited the rest of the worlds of the Promethean system within an hour, then we folded to the human colony of Kathmandu to test the long-range calibration. That proved to still be perfect, and the implausible alibi powered by human full drive 0104 was ready to ply the cosmos. I'm curious about the name, the curator said as he poured a celebratory shot of an obscure brandy that had been aged for almost 200 years. I see the connection with the name of your old ship, but what is it supposed to signify? Well, it's a stolen ship, M said matter-of-factly. The foal drive was diverted and the original hull was salvaged from the airplane graveyard on false premises. Then the witnesses stole it from those people for us, and we just stole all the components out of that ship to build this one. Right now, it's the only ship of its kind in the galaxy and will probably stay that way for a few years. So if we actually take it anywhere, we're going to get asked a lot of questions. And at the moment, I don't have a clue how we're going to answer them. So we'll need an alibi, I said, connecting the dots. Which nobody in their right mind will believe, M finished. Part 46. Four years later, Promethean Uplift Project Plus 40. The Prometheans had gotten quite good at the unique art of blowing large, thin-shelled glass bubbles in outer space and landing them via supergravity. The one that was assigned to become the hull of their first fold ship was 60 meters in diameter. It was nearly a meter thick and massed over a million kilograms. Its construction had been a visual spectacle as the slowly growing globe, growing globe molten blob orbited Prometheus. Now the landing supports had been fastened, each of which sported a boarding tube with twin airlocks. Two of these were three meters in diameter, and one was six meters for cargo. The hull sat in the new clearing beyond the old shipworks, dwarfing the relatively miniature gift of guidance, and when it was there for our even more diminutive and plausible alibi. The full drive was not yet ready but a huge amount of work needed to be done to turn the sphere into a ship before it could receive a drive anyway. It would have seven deck levels, four of them open to a huge internal atrium, 
the entire outside of the ship and the atrium would be devoted to a living life support biome, as in the gift of guidance, but much larger. It was much larger than any human fold ship, but much smaller than most nanite-based alien designs. The Prometheans refused to even discuss the issue of naming it until the fold drive was installed and tested, making it an actual ship. The fold drive itself was coming along. It would be a sphere about three meters in diameter, massing nearly 50,000 kilograms on its own. But while much larger and harder to handle than a human fold drive, this did make it an artifact that could be manipulated on the surface of a world by reasonably scaled equipment. In the ship, it would reside atop a pylon in the central atrium where it would be solidly supported when the ship was landed and subject to external gravity. One reason for the cargo-sized access lock was to fill facilitate installing the drive. The Promethean assembly method was slow but methodical and allowed for every element to be tested and then for its interoperability with the rest of the assembly to be tested before continuing. This meant its chances of success were nearly 100%. Drives made by human methods had to be tested all up and if anything went wrong, basically became expensive silicon bricks. The consortium, which the Hyacinth is spearheaded, were making supergravity drives by human methods, but their yields were in the 70% range, and it was widely agreed that if they tried to make full drives, the yields would be far too low to be worthwhile. Meanwhile, Earth's factories were cranking out full drives, even as they had to move everything around to deal with rising sea levels and other climate change issues. And following after their work on the gift, the Promethean Fold Drive would also be what they called a multiplex drive. It would also be the supergravity drive, power source, and searchlight when called upon. Humans had used separate devices for all these functions, and nanite structures couldn't even make a supergravity microfold. These guys are going to change the galaxy even more than your people did, the human form curator told us over shots of Johnny Walker Blue. Their design is something any world can attempt with a good chance of success with a modest investment in infrastructure. And they won't need to deal with Earth or Prometheus to do it. Much of the galaxy is simply too distant from either humanity or the consortium or this place to practically trade. They're still going to have to build a bigger ship, Em said, and a lot of them aren't going to have Promethean talent at big glass blowing. No, but unlike the nanite version, their full drive is still something that can be assembled and transported within the framework of normal planetary surface construction techniques. And their supergravity-only drive is just as practical as yours to make a larger nanite fold ship able to land, and not all that hard to build for a world of our children that gives any, any priority at all. Don't tell the elves of Earth, them said with a giggle. They might send assassins after you, too. You know, this reminds me that there is something I wanted to show you. How would you like to take a little trip in the alibi? You're wearing an amplifier belt. Why don't we just hold your hands, I asked. Because you need to take the ship out once in a while anyway, and this is a place that's safe to take it. Besides, I like the view from these ships too. It's much more fun than just folding out from the surface here to the surface there. So two days later, we boarded the implausible alibi and then took it through a systems check. Where to? She asked brightly. It's CI-649277. I can get you the coordinates. Not necessary. We have the whole index in the computer. 
Oh, right, human computers. It's been a while. I'm sure the ones they have now make these look stupid. They've had close to 50 years to improve the art. Not really. We might take a little side trip on the way back. But we folded over to the star system of Curator's Index World 649277 in a single jump, over 70,000 light years away, and to orbit around at another single jump. Their air traffic control is informal, our curator said. He directed us to a large city and then to a flat area of land he said was an airstrip landing field. Just take any flat spot that's not in use, he said. Well, that's not conspicuous at all, M said as we looked back at the alibi towering over a field of ordinary air cars. You'll see that it won't be a problem, he said as we walked into town. There was some kind of large, elaborate complex in the middle of it with some of the tallest spires we had ever seen on an alien world. Well, if you accepted the highest since skyscraper, at least. The curator led us to what turned out to be a bar and restaurant across the street. The barkeep greeted us in a very squeaky, high-pitched, clacky language, which our translator amulets handled. The bartender had a short, bright orange fur and a beak instead of a mouth, and the mark of the curator's was prominent across its flat chest. My alien friend, the barkeep said, and you have brought more like yourself. Let me break out the good stuff for you. By all means, the curator answered without using the translator himself. I wanted to show my friends your wonderful hall of history. It is fine, isn't it? But surely there are more impressive things out there in the galaxy. The liquor he served us was fermented but not distilled and had a smoky, very rich taste. This is very good, I said. What is it fermented from? A mix of local plants, the barkeep said. The recipe is a closely held secret of each brewery. We have similar traditions on Earth, M said. You are from Earth? The place that makes the fold drives? We allowed us to how, yes, we might be kind of slumming around the galaxy. We can hardly imagine doing something like that, it said as we finished our drinks. If you don't mind, I'd be fascinated to hear what you think of our great hall. I won't be offended if you tell me it is the toy of a small child by your standards. We'll be back, the curator said. So what was that all about, we asked him as we joined the local tourists entering the hall. To our surprise, we didn't get a lot of attention for being, well, aliens. This is a world that has a smaller problem than Prometheus, but a lot more worlds have this problem. These children are underachievers. As he said this, we entered a room dedicated to the curator's gift of fire. It was fucking awe-inspiring. Take everything humans ever made for gods that we had made up in our fever dreams and translate it to a race that damn well knew who their gods were. You call this underachievement, M said? They have never built a fold drive. They built exactly one service shuttle and one power station capable of launching it, and we get the strong impression they did that out of a sense of duty rather than desire. They have excellent taste and products of their own to offer. They could be vibrant members of the galactic trade, but they show no interest. Every year or two, another species visits them, and they do a little trade, and a few tourists come and go, but for the most part, they simply have no interest in expanding their horizons. We entered a hall dedicated to their first circumnavigation of their world. It was filled with beautiful visuals illustrating the effect this had on their understanding of both their world and the universe around them. 
It was unnecessary to understand their written language to be floored by the artistry and symbology that was employed. These people have some incredibly gifted artists, I said. Oh, they do. We just more of our children could appreciate their efforts. Why are you showing us this? Because it is beautiful. And you are in the process of solving a problem for us that we had no idea how to solve on our own. While this isn't quite as serious, it's still another problem we would like to solve. Back at the bar, the barkeep welcomed us enthusiastically. So what did you think? It's gorgeous, amazing, and we used a few other similar adjectives to make sure the translator got the point across. We're quite proud of it, it said. So why don't you make more of an effort to show it to the rest of the galaxy? It made a gesture the translate said was short laughter. Your friend here asks us about that sometimes. There are some among us who want that. But a fold ship is an enormous project. And it's hard to see just how much we could gain by devoting so many resources to building one. It comes up once in a while. I think the last time was a few sweet before I was born. But the vote always fails by a wide margin. We appreciate your visits and your business, but there isn't a lot of will here to stick our beaks out into the rest of the galaxy. We walked back to the alibi in silence. This is a much more difficult problem than Prometheus was, M said as we neared the ship. The Prometheans had correctly guessed that your nanites were an instrument of control, and they were eager to expand once we showed them how to bypass that control. These people don't seem to care about that. It's more that they have simply done the math and not seen a benefit to going any further than they have. That's our evaluation too, the curator said. We believe their evaluation is incorrect, but we haven't figured out how to convince them. Well, we're probably the wrong people to ask about this problem, I said. Humans did it all on our own. We just showed the Prometheans what we had done, and then they followed suit. But the people of this world already know what is possible and don't seem to care. Humans once did it all on your own, he said. Then he extended his hands. We also need to talk about Earth. Roger, tell him where to get the book. I gotta use the restroom. If you would like a printed copy of my book, like this, and uh, this is weird because I am—I uh, have the Zoom thing over here and the camera is over here. So, um, you can get it from Amazon like everybody does generally, but I strongly encourage you to go to Lulu, L-U-L-U dot com instead and uh, get it there. They are the publisher of Origin. Uh, they will be the people who print it anyway if you get it from Amazon. Uh, it unfortunately won't be any cheaper for you because the contracts that were written to make it available on Amazon forbid Lulu from underselling them. But the difference is that if you buy it directly from Lulu, they give me the money they would normally give Amazon the network. And that means that for one copy of the book, instead of getting $1.50 in royalties, I get more like $6.00. So uh, it would uh, kind of be nice. On the other hand, if you have Amazon gift cards or credit or Prime or something, uh, I don't begrudge you if you get it from Amazon. I still get most of my revenue from there because by far the majority of the sales come from there. 
and that's fine too. Uh, it's just a thought. Don't give Bezos any more money. Yeah. All right. Well, there's that too. All right. <laughs> okay. Part 47. Five seconds later. It was raining pretty hard. Sorry about the weather, the curator said. There are other places I could have brought you on other colonies, but this is the most illustrative. This is Research City, human colony of Pretoria. We are about 10 clicks from the lab where the sunlight cannon was developed. Across the street was an obvious retail establishment with signs advertising electronics in five human languages. As we crossed the street, the curator said, this place gets everything state-of-the-art from Earth because of the research contracts. Pay attention to the specifications. The basic wares had not changed much in 40 years. There were phones and tablets and flat slabs with bright displays and various accessories. There were offers of data plans and various claims of coverage and rates. I wasn't sure what the currency was worth, so it was hard to tell what the prices meant. Finally, M looked up from the fine print on an ad for a workstation computer. This is some kind of a joke, right? These specifications are right from the start of our exile 40 years ago. Battery performance was improved quite a bit in the early years while you were away, the curator said. And there were manufacturing improvements from the full drive research, but some of those were offset by resource availability problems. The basic processor and memory tech is almost exactly the same as it was when you were last on Earth. And prices compared to other commodities are also similar. By the way, I asked you to bring your own phones. Why don't you check signal? These still worked, M said incredulously, as the curator nodded. No significant improvements there either. You could dial an emergency number that doesn't require a connection plan right now. We walked up the street to a bar the curator knew and ordered stiff drinks. What have our people been doing for the last four decades, M asked. Humans have taught us much about how our mathematical models interlock. Our models promised that war would limit your population, but you proved us wrong. There are many reasons for that, all of them extraordinary. Your fondness for clothing made it possible for you to expand to far more diverse regions of Earth than most of our children managed to colonize of their own worlds. Your tribalism and determination and quick imagination made it possible to weld yourselves together into large organizations to build new munitions, organize previously unknown defenses, and create new modes of manufacture and transportation. And then there's capitalism. We just looked at him. Our models also promised that your modern economic system would collapse, inevitably decaying back into feudalism. But ironically, your penchant for blowing stuff up once in a while in war saved it. Your theorists correctly understood what our model said, which is that capitalism only works when there is constant exponential growth. Some of your own thinkers understood the insanity of depending on that. But what we didn't understand was that the occasional catastrophic reset could keep the exponential collapse at bay. Your kind mourn the losses of your wars and natural disasters, but you have actually needed those things. The collapse of Earth's climate is the only thing that kept capitalism going as long as it did. If it was working so well, why did it stop, I asked. You invented the fold drive, 
you colonized the stars. You sent your surplus population away, and most of them went willingly because the colonies were founded on our standards of stability and plenty via the nanite economy. Still, there was a lot of pride associated with being allowed to stay on Earth. Today, the population is around 800 million, and Earth is the only place in the galaxy where your advanced full drives and other electronics are made. The Hyacinth Consortium manages to make supergravity drives, but they have constant quality issues because nobody does fanatical devotion to an abstract procedure like humans. We think the Prometheans will put the consortium out of business because while their product is inferior, it is so much easier to manufacture. That doesn't explain why humans stopped improving, M said. There was no longer any need. With the historic pressures removed by the full diaspora, all the capital consolidated around a few families who now control everything. Your capitalist system finally decayed into feudalism, as our novels insisted it should. The ruling dynasties have no reason to engage in conflict because they have carved out an equitable arrangement between themselves. They have nothing practical to gain by risking anything to try to take anything from each other. Earth is now feudal, but on a scale nobody has ever seen in billions of years. Earth is both the most technologically advanced world and the closest thing to a slave world that exists in our galactic garden. Humans produce full drives and other electronics in return for raw materials and other considerations for many of our children. The low-level economy is completely controlled by the oligarchs, and surveillance is pervasive. Dissident elements are easily detected and sent to the colonies. Such equitable arrangements didn't stop wars from developing in past human feudal societies, I pointed out. The four main geopolitical powers that exist now don't seem to have a taste for it, but we think you're right. In the long term, we don't think it's stable either, but we don't have any idea how to fix it. In the past, I think that usually started with a revolution, Em said. The revolutionaries are all off here. Transporting them is a much more humane solution than the historic alternative, so there's little meaningful opposition to it. An advanced system of propaganda keeps most of the people who remain on Earth proud to be citizens of their feudal nation-states and to be part of what they consider an extraordinary global project, which, to be honest, it is. It just bothers us that something we don't think has long-term stability is becoming so important to so many of our other children. If there is a revolution, they will fold Earth into Saul, M said dejectedly. All of the geopolitical players have fold span limiters to deter that, the curator said. She chugged the rest of her drink and signals for another. That's human genius for you, she said with a burp. We have four fold span limiters on one world because, being human, we need them. And she laughed in a way that made it clear she didn't really find it funny. Why did you decide to tell us this? I asked. Nobody has any idea what to do about it. You two are probably the most qualified individuals in the galaxy to brainstorm solutions. In two or three years, the Prometheans will demonstrate their foldship, and it will be time to let them go. You have been so successful. There, we will hope you give some guidance on other problems. Like the guys who don't build foldships at all? The curator shrugged. We're pretty good at ironing things out, but it's a big galaxy, and so we do have a few issues. And thanks to the witnesses, we're probably going to live a long time, so we'll need something to do. 
I couldn't tell whether M was being sarcastic or sincere. The need for something to do is what caused our ancestors to start curating all those billions of years ago. Don't underestimate it as a force for change. Go to any other galaxy. We have once in a while, and they are all nearly sterile. Here in the Milky Way, we have a vibrant garden because our ancestors decided they preferred garden worlds to sterile boulders. If you've got so much experience, why do you think we can be any help at all? Because you're human, he said. And if anyone can do something we don't think is possible, it's you. Part 48. Three years later. It was not the first time the Prometheans would operate their new fold drive. We had spent months doing test folds to calibrate it, <clears throat> taking it greater and greater distances in tandem with the implausible alibi. We established that while the Promethean multiplex fold drive would not hold the calibration as well as the implausibles, it, would di it did much better than nanite drives could and, and could accurately cross the galaxy in as few as five folds instead of 20 or more by the usual method of using index curated worlds as waypoints. In all those tests, we never came within a light year of another planet or star, though. But the tests proved that the Prometheans had a starship, and so the naming debate began. In the end, they decided by global acclamation to call their first starship Surprise. It was poetically appropriate on many levels. This was the ship's practical first practical journey with a full complement of passengers. There had been some discussion on the microfold about where they should go, and the relatively ancient world of CI-172-200 had made the best offer, promising a well-cleared and accessible landing area, VIP treatment, and a grand celebration of our arrival. Of course, they also wanted to see the multiplex drive in action, since the Prometheans had not kept any secrets about it, and like a number of other worlds, they were seriously considering an effort to duplicate it. Most of the passengers had gone to the hull to watch the stars change as we folded, but Em and I and a few other more technically inclined folks stuck to the inner atrium balconies to watch the drive. Although it was larger than the human drive, it was built similarly out of thousands of thin layers. But while the human fold drive was made of silicon wafers, the Promethean drive was made of glass plates, and so it emitted brilliant flashes of light as it operated. Since the plates were all oriented the same way, those flashes illuminated a circle around the interior of the ship's atrium. Not that it was expected to be dangerous, but everyone made a point to stand away from that circle of light the first few times the drive operated. The multiplex drive had already lifted us from the surface in supergravity mode, and now it flashed brilliantly as we folded away from Prometheus. Our hosts were about 40,000 light years away, so this would be a three-jump journey for the first time without implausible alibi to hold its figurative hand. For this journey, for the first time, we were just passengers. The Prometheans were doing the star traveling all on their own. While they were adjusting coordinates for the next fold, we made our way down to the operations room, three levels below the pond at the bottom of the atrium. Permission to enter, M asked formally. For you two always, welcome. We seem to be about four light years off, not too bad. We'll be on our way within another hour. 
the lights were low, so that the gas discharge instrument displays could easily be read. And the instrument's mostly soft orange light dominated the color of the ambient illumination. Good show, I said. How is life support holding up with so many people on board? <clears throat> well, that's our specialty, so we have no surprises there. We're at maximum capacity, so carbon dioxide is going up gradually. But we could hold out for weeks before it gets dangerous, and we'll be on world again within half a day at most. Since the surprise promised quick boarding and relatively short journey times, it did not have private accommodations like the giant Nanite-based whole ships. Instead, it had benches, hammocks, walkways, and observation points where people could gather and mingle. It could carry about as many passengers as the largest human aircraft-style full ships, but far more comfortably, and it could also take on some fairly large cargo items. Several hours later, we watched through the hull as surprise descended through the atmosphere of a living world toward a circular clearing which had been prepared for us outside a major city. Once we were on the ground, it was only a few minutes before the boarding tubes were opened and passengers started making their way off the ship. All these folks are going to clog the nearby pubs, a familiar voice said behind us. I happen to know a good one on the other side of the world. They have a fantastic fermented drink here that bears an uncanny resemblance to your Bloody Mary. As we turned around, the curator held out his hands and we took them and folded across to his bar. It's their celebration anyway, he said, as our drinks were made. Our principle is to interfere as little as possible once our children escape the critical path. You two have done well. None of this would have been possible without you. CI-172-200 was far more ancient than any world we had ever visited. The city had mostly been made with nanites, but in waves of deferring architecture, none of which quite completely replaced what had gone before. The result was a riot of colors and designs and shapes, which held a new surprise every time you glanced in a new direction. This is a very old world, the curator continued. They were spacefaring before Earth had its Cambrian explosion. How is that possible, I'm asked. Earth has had multiple mass extinctions in that time, and no modern species remotely resembles what existed 500 million years ago. Evolution either stops or behaves differently when a species begins controlling their own genome for some purpose like the life extension, the curator said, as our drinks arrived. The spirits were indeed spicy and savory. So I guess our job is done, M said. Indeed, I have also given up the amplifier belt. The Prometheans have their own place in the galaxy now. And since that ends this project, I was wondering if you have given any thought as to what to do next. You had been giving us some suggestions, I said. Yes, I was wondering if you might want to join us for any of them. Who's us? I'm asked. Those you call the curators. We never have a shortage of stuff to do, what with it being a big galaxy. That could be interesting, I said. Yes, I suppose it could, Emma agreed. Great. He stood between us and clapped us both on the back, which was a shockingly physical thing for him to do. In all the decades we'd known him, he had always shied from physical contact and never initiated it. This place also has a passable hotel, and it's going to be a local nighttime soon. I'll see you in the morning. Well, that was odd, Em said after he left. 
We went to the desk and after a brief discussion in Galactic Common found that we had rooms reserved for us until the day of the surprise was scheduled to leave in a week. So we went back to our rooms and had the last completely normal night of sleep we ever would. Episode 49. It did not really hit me just how old CI-172-200 was until the morning when I happened to notice the little galactic common plaque dating the building we were staying in. It was over 500,000 years old and had been continuously operated as a way station for travelers and visitors for all of that time. The natives did not have the deep longevity cure which the witnesses had given him and me, but they did have the same generic boost that all races got if they asked for it, and that meant most of the passerby and help we met were several hundred years old. On our first full day, our curator friend gave us a tour of the city. Unlike many of the world cities, it was above the maximum flood line as the sea level shifted, so it had never been drowned or abandoned. But it had also got very cold and more thinly populated during eras when it was high above sea level. There were monuments to all these eras all over, sometimes standing in the open and sometimes embedded in working buildings. The oldest building in the city was over 5 million years old, and this was not a particularly old city for this world. How the hell do they keep such old structures looking so good, M asked as we ate lunch at a picturesque outdoor cafe. Danites, he said. There are rejuvenation protocols for floors and walls. The worn nanites are scrubbed and new ones installed to recreate the original surface profile. They had this tech from their beginning over half a billion years ago, so as long as it isn't under salt water or melted by lava, they can keep it looking new. Nanites weren't just a trap we set to keep our children down, you know. They actually work very well for some things. I guess we're a little too close to the space travel thing to appreciate that, I said. The vast majority of our children will never travel between the stars, or at least that's what we've always believed. Star travel is important so that our children can exchange skills and ideas, but until recently we never believed that it was a thing all of our children, down to the last individual, might have a reason to experience. We retired for our second night on CI-172-200, after walking a few miles through the city and never leaving it. And in the middle of the night, I got up, and feeling a bit dizzy and weird, I went outside, where I found him lounging on the public balcony off the floor of our hotel. Earth, she said, pointing upward. Something clicked in my head, and I felt the rightness of this. Hyacinth, she said, and swung her arm down to point through the floor. Of course, space existed in a full sphere, even though there was a planet beneath us. That was inconsequential. Our ship? I said, and without thinking, swung around to point my own finger at a seemingly random spot of sky above. I didn't think of thinking of old ships. The surprise. I got a sense of a menu being fleshed out of all the ships that might have that name and an automatic selection being made. The Promethean surprise was in orbit, and we could sense its motion. Okay, I said. What you mean is, what the actual fuck? Yeah, that too. It doesn't work for Prometheus, though. 
That's because the name Prometheus was never registered through the microfold network. If you think of it as CI-829166, you will get a bearing, our curator said as he stepped out of the shadows. As soon as he gave us the index, Em and I both swung our arms around to the same direction, which of course was also the same point at which I'd located the implausible alibi, which we'd left parked on Prometheus. What the fuck have you done to us? She asked. I have lived a very long time, he said with a wry smile. And when you live as long as I have, there are certain memories you cherish. One of mine is our first encounter on the quarantine world. When I folded away and you, M, dove for the place I had just been standing, I knew that you were both a species and a pair of individuals that we should recruit. You have no idea how many of our children would have just shrugged and said fuck it before obediently running home. But there were strong forces on my side opposing human recruitment because of your lack of curation and all of the reasons we hadn't curated you. And general worry about what humans might do with the unrestrained powers we offer. Obviously you overcame that, M said dryly. You proved your worth at Prometheus, he said. You didn't just curate successfully. You finished a curation that we couldn't. Even those who find you suspect can't ignore that. You set it up, I said. You sent us to the witnesses and we became exiles because of their longevity treatment. So we had nothing else to do but to go to Prometheus. I might have had something to do with that, he admitted. It didn't take much of a push to get the witnesses to practice their art on you. That's why I sent you to them instead of those who do similar work for us. To my surprise, I saw tears running down M's cheeks. I, I've missed Earth so much, she said. I can't believe you did that to us. Can I make it up to you? Would you like to visit Earth now? And how would that be possible now when it wasn't last week? You have fold implants now. You don't know how to use them yet. But while you are novices, I can control them for you. And they will do most of the work of protecting you without even any intervention. Even with the amplifier, I can't really protect two other people the way personal implants can. Take us, M said. A moment later, we stepped out from behind one of the service structures onto the roadbed of the Golden Gate Bridge. There were hundreds of people around. It was a clear day, and we could see Alcatraz, Angel Island, and even Oakland. There was no vehicular traffic, and the entire deck was occupied by walkers, joggers, and bicyclists. A large sign just above our arrival point reminded everyone that powered vehicles were forbidden. It smelled like Earth. After 40 years, both the scent of the atmosphere and one Earth gravity settled in our bones like familiar old friends. So how is this safe now when it wasn't before, M asked. There are defensive measures your implants can take that mine can't do for you. Defensive measures like what? Anything, really. All right, so what happens if someone shoots one of us? Good example. Your implant will fold you to safety without conscious direction. Mine can't do that for you. So where the fuck is this implant anyway? Where's the black spot on our medical scans? Oh, there isn't one, the curator said with a smile. Your implants exist in a folded hypersphere of matter, compatible space, almost completely separate from our own universe. They only exist in our universe at the points where they interact with your nervous system. That doesn't sound too reliable. 
We've been doing it for almost eight million years, eight billion years. In the early going, there was an effort to develop something more native to the higher dimensions, but those projects weren't as reliable as normal matter in a stabilized fold bubble. So to this day, we build the implants here in the Milky Way, and the first thing they do when powered up is fold themselves off into bubbles. You build them here out of normal matter. What are they like in that form? About 30 meters in diameter. Not of nanites, obviously, but built with the same techniques we used to make the original nanites. They're over 100 times denser and faster than human assembly solutions. Each of your implants is far more powerful than any computer or even full network ever deployed in natural space. My sense of position seems to be getting sharper by the minute, M said. It will do that. Eventually, it will know your neuron well enough to immerse you in photorealistic alternate reality if it has a reason. At this early stage, you're probably seeing wireframe diagrams and number dumps. Check, I said. So what about the amplifier belts? Same technology, different scale. Those are almost a kilometer in diameter as natural matter before they leave the universe. Needless to say, we can't make a lot of those, and they're incredibly dangerous in the wrong hands. Your implants create a standardized control interface so the amplifiers don't have to know your neuron. Would you two care for a drink? I think we're going to need one, M said. We faded back to the stanchion where we had disappeared, from which we had appeared, <laughs> and a moment later we emerged from the restroom corridor at the top of the mark. The hostess seated us and we scanned the martini menu. Like the gravity, it was like homecoming to experience the simple ordinary geometry and workmanship of a human building made by the techniques we remembered, sheetrock and carpet and hardwood, not a simple paint. There were dozens of fold ships in orbit and at rest on the ground. We could sense all of them and identify the alien ones that were properly registered. I don't understand how we can become curators, M said. We aren't your species. The curator looked down at the floor for a moment. The original race of curators who made us all has long been extinct, he said. They died along with their home world when it became uninhabitable because of their star's evolution. There were many of them out in the galaxy doing our work, but those individuals had all taken the longevity cure and had accepted sterility as a necessary condition. Back then... Even now, really, except for you humans, it had not occurred to anybody to try anything like a mass interstellar immigration to establish a new home. Our ancestors thought it would be a better use of those worlds they had curated to see what evolution might create. And who are you? Most of us alive today were recruited, as I just recruited you, although usually with less drama. It is also common for us to be serially immortal. After a certain period, usually a few thousand years, your implant will know your neuron well enough to fully emulate it. At that point, it can separate from this bioform and interface with a suitably young individual of another species and gradually impress your personality on its neuron. We usually choose infant children who would have died for some unrelated reason for this purpose. And of course, we can adjust the imprints which are carried over to make sure there is fulfillment rather than disgust with the new bioform, even if it is quite different. I have only been human for about 60,000 Earth years, but I am about 30 million years old. I have changed species dozens of times as my assignment has shifted, and I am actually young for a curator. 
Who gives out these assignments? I asked. Obviously, we have a structure of government, although it's hard to explain without going to some fairly deep math. Most of us are recruited with an expectation that we will give some measure of service, but by our choice, there is no enforcement mechanism for this. In your case, we don't even have an expectation of service. We want to see what you make of and do with your new powers. We have pointed you in the general direction of a couple of problems we'd be interested in seeing you tackle, but if you decide to retire and spend eternity living in virtual reality instead, you'll find you have quite a bit of company and nobody will stop you. You wouldn't call in the mortgage on your supercomputer implants? Nobody would ever accept one if we did that sort of thing. That's a risk for us, which is one reason I had to arrange for you to prove yourselves in order to get your recruitment approved. M finally took a sip and then a deep swig of her world-famous top of the bar martini. You say our implants will fold us away from danger, she said. Is there a way to make it maybe make, do something more theatrical? Once you're in control, you'll find they are fully programmable and far more powerful than any computer you've ever imagined. The tools for that are very high level and it will tune themselves to your neurome as you use them. How long does it usually take to get to that point of control, to not be novices? It usually takes a couple of years, but you are progressing very fast. As your novitial mentor, I get reports. That's how I knew you were out here testing your new fold senses. Your aptitude may have a lot to do with the human imagination. Even while sitting here, you are constantly thinking of situations, hypotheticals, evaluating potential answers. This is the thing I saw in the quarantine world, where nearly any other species watching me disappear would have simply thrown up their hands and said, whatever, you wanted to know what I had done. You wanted to be able to do it yourselves, and you wanted badly. This hunger is making it easy for your implants to figure out the relationships within your neurome. You will probably be out of novice mode in a few months, but I wouldn't advise entering dangerous situations until you've gotten a bit more experience beyond that point. M finished her martini and signaled for another. If we are going to fix the political situation here, we need to make a splash, she said. Jay, do you think our friends at the Witness Textile Reef can manage spandex? I'm sure they will figure it out, I said, seeing where she was going with this. The curator smiled. I am almost afraid of what I've just started here, and that is wonderful. Part 50. The curators arranged to fake citizenship for us, not in the United States of America, but in the Russo-American Concordance, which included both North and South America, all of the previous USSR, and what had once been the European Union. It was an insanely oppressive and xenophobic state that pretended to have elections, but left it an open secret that people who voted the wrong way might just disappear. To the colonies, of course, ha-ha, but no one really knew. With the curator's help hacking the system, we managed to obtain ownership of a modest house on the outskirts of Terlingua, where the density of stuff worth of being stolen was too low to attract the interest of the kleptocracy running that part of the world. 
As we practice daily learning to control our implants, we also planted some very illegal nanites beneath a closet and let them carve out an underground retreat far larger than the house and 40 meters beneath the surface. It wouldn't be invisible to ground-penetrating radar, but you'd have to suspect it was there first to make such a search worth doing. Eight months later, our mentor curator invited us to return to the top of the mark in San Francisco. By this time, we could make the clandestine journey without his help. And as we took our seats, he handed in and made two small gray sticks about 10 centimeters long and a few millimeters in diameter. What are these? Em asked. They are the keys that allow me to remotely control your implants. They make me your mentor and give me power over you as novices. And what are we supposed to do with them, I asked. You break them, he said with a smile. I snapped mine and it didn't just break in half. It dissolved into dust. M followed suit. What has been destroyed today can never be reassembled, the curator said. You are no longer novices. You are now curators. Behold our galactic garden and take your place among us as its stewards. So what happens now, I asked. Well, I think you are contemplating the visits of the witnesses. It will take a few hops, and I can't do it for you anymore. You'll have to follow me. But first, why not enjoy our cocktails? Later, the witnesses greeted us like long-lost friends, and we quickly found ourselves in the textile lab, which had grown considerably since our last visit. No people may make nice fold drives, but cloth is your species' true genius, the lab director told us. Considering what is going on on Earth, we consider it imperative to learn and preserve as much as we can of your technology. We were looking for something like this, I said, and I popped up a review of comic book superhero costumes on my phone. We know the theory of this material, but we have never made it, he said. An excellent learning opportunity. What about the foot and handwear? Boots and gloves, them said. Flat boots, in my case. I'm not going the battle in heels, and in leather if you can manage it. We don't make a frequent habit of making it for ourselves, but we do have sources of suitable animal skin, and we have tanning methods. And if possible, that salt should be electroconductive. That would help us avoid a lot of compensating factors when folding. We have coatings that can probably manage that. After going over a few more details, we found ourselves at orders to wait a few days. Once we were done at the textilery, our curator suggested that or there was somebody we might want to see. Or not, M said with a frown. Don't think I know what this is about. He was absorbed in meditation when we kind of barged in on him. Greetings, he said, without looking up. M, I'm surprised you're willing to be in the same room with me. Things change, she said. Hugh got up. So they do, he said. I have been granted the favor of entrance into the witness's order. Like the curators, they occasionally recruit aliens to their purpose. Considering what you once tried to do to them, I find that mildly surprising, but then I remember it's the witnesses we're talking about. Hugh smiled and nodded. Yes, indeed. Does your status as a witness prevent you from participating in the history that you are witnessing, M asked? Not entirely. I would have to consult with my master. Ours is a long course of study, and I will be a student for a long time. M sucked in her breath. 
we had agreed on this, but I still wasn't sure she would be able to go through with it. Are you aware that we are also students? I'm aware that you are not students anymore. You have my congratulations and for what it might be worth my blessing. I think you will make fine curators. Then you know we have a slightly used starship we have no use for anymore. If it is still powered by 0104, maybe you should just destroy it. As beautiful as the implausible alibi is, it is still a dangerous artifact. And I'm the one being in the galaxy who proved that most decisively. We were actually thinking of asking you to buy it for us, M said. Our fault implants do not allow us to carry much in the way of cargo, and there may be times when we will still need a ship. Hugh sank to his knees, and a few tears ran down his cheeks. I cannot imagine how you think I am worthy of such an honor. Oh, I don't think you're worthy, M said, but I do think you're capable, and I do believe you've reformed, which isn't much, but is something. Hugh sobbed openly. I'll, I'll have to ask my master, but no, we've asked her already. You're clear to come. Witness what we're going to do. They're positively splooging themselves over it. Behind us, the curator chuckled. He looked up. What are you going to do? We're going to clean up the cesspool that our home world has become. I would think you would want in on some of that action anyway. Tears streaming down his face, he nodded. At the, back at the textilery, we looked at ourselves over in the mirror. They had done their usual amazing job, and we really did look like cutouts from a superhero comic. Our bodysuits were metallic silver and shimmered as we moved. There was just one problem. Kind of bland, M said. We need some kind of signature. We decided every color was significant to something we didn't want to confuse ourselves with, and the symbols were a similar problem. Yeah, but we just show up and kick ass like this. Nobody will remember why we're doing it. Well, why are we doing it? To topple the decadent kleptocracy that's taken over the earth. Well, that's a negative. What's the positive? What are we replacing it with? Em stared hard at the mirror, and then her eyes got wide. Not what we're really replacing it with, she almost shouted. What the fuckers are most afraid of? And that is? Crowns. Let them think we're coming to take over their shit. It's the one thing they will truly believe in and fear. We'll call ourselves the king and queen of Earth and say we are coming to claim our thrones. We can always abdicate toward a more reasonable power once we've brought the assholes down. Not too eager to go into battle with several kilograms of gold sitting on my head, I said dubiously. How about titanium, the witness textiler suggested. And with the decorations as reflective motifs instead of gemstones, Am suggested, and the textiler nodded. This isn't our wheelhouse, but I know we can do it for you, the witness said. And an hour later, we were in another lab with a metallurgist who measured our skulls and used what we would consider rather primitive tools to form a mock-up of what our headgear would look like. A week later, we walked out of the foundry to find our curator mentor waiting for us. He opened his eyes wide and said, well, if it isn't the royal couple, with a chuckle. Using new Routines Em had written into our fold implants, we floated up from the floor using the supergravity effect and spread our arms. We will rule, we said, and we all had a good laugh. This concludes book one of the curators. Fuck yeah.
Book two coming. <laughs> Fuck yeah. That was fucking great, dude. That reminded me so much of... That reminded me so much of December 2009 when three months of pledgeship were over and we were initiated. And all of a sudden, like, all these brothers that had been, like, physically and mentally just beating you for three months, barely slept, you don't fucking know which way is up, it's your first semester out of out of home, you know, you're all 18, 19, and then getting initiated, and, like, the flipping of a switch, because you forget, like, the only reason they, like, allow you to be pledges is because, like, they like you, they think you're cool, but, like, they just treat you like shit for three months to the point where you actually think they fucking hate you, and you forget why you're even doing it, and then all of a sudden you get initiated, and I vividly remember, like, they, you got initiated in, like, sets of two. Maybe there's like 20 of us. And I think I was in like the second set. And I remember it's so weird. And they like take like the hood off you. And all the guys are sitting there like clapping and shit. And you're just looking around. And you're like, <laughs> in your mind, you're like, I am like Pavlovianly trained to fear everyone I see here. Like I can remember, the, I won't say their last names, but like Kyle and, and Nate and, and John and Kevin and Chris and and you like I fucking hate all they're all laughing and they all got like a you know a bud heavy and like a, a cigarette <laughs> and they're like you made it dude and you're like fuck it and the first thing they do is they come up they give you like your initiate number I think I was 876 and they come up to you and they're like yo you wanna go fuck with your pledge brothers cause they're not initiated yet and you're like fuck yeah I do and so you go there and you're like fucking you're like shooting the shit with these guys who like are your sworn enemies. It'd be like if you saw Bin Laden or Hitler and you guys were just like yucking it up and you go back there and you see all your brothers and they're still in. They don't even think they're getting initiated. They think we're fucked. They think that like we didn't make it, which is all a lie. Everyone always makes it. You just have to not quit. And you go back there and you see them and you're like, fuck yeah. And obviously you can't say anything. But they'll recognize your voice and they'll know everything's all right. So, you know, they're going through like whatever the initiate process is. It's like 20. And, you know, you're walking by and you're just fucking shoving them and shit. You know, whatever you want to do. I mean, they're pledges. They're shit. You know, you can just fucking spit on their head and they don't give it. They're so broken down. And then all of a sudden, like, and then you get to see them get initiated. And then you go up to them. You're like, dude, let's go fuck with the other guys. And like, it's this. And then the next year you get to actually go through the whole pledgeship process as a brother. And it's, I mean, it's a lot like, I mean, in a fucked up way. I imagine it's like raising a kid. You get to see them live all these things for the first time. And like, they think you, they actually think that, that, that you hate them. And you're like, dude, these kids are so fucking, t-. you know, you're all in like the frat house and the pledges are walking up for like Sunday meeting. You're like, all right, all right. You're like everybody, everybody, you know, straight face, straight face. And, you know, they come in, you're like, the fuck are you doing? You know, just like, and then they leave and you're like, dude, that kid's so fucking cool. <laughs> but like, you go through this whole thing and it's like, it's, it's one of the hardest, you know, I think I'm pretty good at explaining things, but it's one of the hardest things to explain that feeling of having the hood lifted off. And it's just, it's not a gradual process. It's like instant enlightenment. It's just, they're all like clapping and shit. And you're like, you're almost like, you're almost hesitant. And they're like, what's up, dude? And you fucking bring you a beer and a cigarette. And you're like, what the fuck? And they're like, dude, we're going to party like animals tonight. And you're like, what is going on? And it's so you're transformed. It is. It is. I mean, it's, it's like a religious experience. And like, and then like the next year you're getting to see these young guys and a lot of them drop out. And the whole thing is like, no one ever gets, unless I think, like, one guy, like, I, th- I forget what he did. I think one guy, like, one pledge one time actually, like, pushed a girl or something. And they're like, well, we, we can't have that guy's a physical abuser, so you got to kick him out. But aside from that, like, 
the secret is, is no one gets cut. You quit. So guys will, mm. you'll start with 50 guys and 11 will finish. And our fraternity always prided itself on just being the most fucked up and hellish. We had the lowest like completion rate. Like some guys would be like, we only 90% of our guys finish. And they'd be like, dude, we strive to not, never finish more than 15% of our guys. And you break them down. But it's beautiful seeing this process of them going through all the same things. And then they make it. And yeah. then you go up to them and you see them jumping. You're like, dude, it's good. It's good. And it's this beautiful oh, thing. Oh, it's like boot camp. Or, yeah. And, but, but, and I do have to clarify, though, that that fraternity – we're we were at, I think we were there for like sixty years, so it's like a long old thing. That fraternity has been permanently removed from the campus as of like two years ago, <laughs> and uh, the fraternity <laughs> and and like the house was bulldozed, repossessed, and the actual chapter was dissolved. Because the, the year after I transferred to UGA, they got in trouble because there was a fight at a party, and someone pulled a revolver, and so my friend tackled him and bit his ear off, like uh, Mike Tyson. And yeah, it was on national news, and it like. Not cool. So no, yeah, no, 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 cool. no, no, no. Well, it wasn't cool. in in my friend's defense. It wasn't cool to have someone pull a revolver on you. But you know, I'm not saying you should bite their ear off. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. A revolver and an ear don't make a right. But the point is, is maybe that sets the stage so you know just how fucking intense these guys were. What I'm saying, this whole rant is, is like that's the feeling that I got evoked from that. That the emotional like kind of tears you're like what the fuck like you've kind of just subjected yourself to like I'm just a pledge forever I'm gonna die a pledge at age 75 and like they demolish your brain and then it's just in a moment you just you get the fold and you're like what you know hyperspace fold it's like wait I get access to the fraternity house now I get to use pledges to be my DDs like I get access to yeah. sorority girls yeah yeah Actually, actually, for reference, uh, at this point in the story, it's the year 2160, give or take. And Jay and M are about 140 years old. Yeah. it's But they look like they're in their late 20s at this point because of the cure. Yeah. it's But that's exactly what it made me think of. It, 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 was, yeah. it was hitting all the same notes. It's, and it's one of the... Yeah, well, kind of... You know, Shipping them off to Prometheus with, uh, you know, where they're kind of fugitives mm -hmm. and letting them see if they can do something with this awkward situation that the curators couldn't deal with it themselves anyway and all. Yeah, I can see the parallels. It's, and, yeah. you know, only it's more like if – actually, there is a parallel with the thing that they do at Caltech where – uh, they they do this uh, annual hazing ritual where uh, the upperclassmen invade the lowerclassmen's dorms uh, unless they barricade them. And some of them do these really stupidly elaborate physical barricades. But then some of them will just post like a problem, a math problem on the door. And you can't pass and violate the room unless you solve the problem. And so you'll have upper graduates, you know, sitting in in pairs or threes or whatever, you know, pouring over these problems that have been posted on the door, see if they can get in the room by solving the problem. Uh, and, and that's kind of, there's that element to it because it's the, can you solve this problem for us? Because if they hadn't solved the problem with Prometheus, they would probably still be sitting on the surface of Prometheus, mm -hmm. you know, just having dinner with the Prometheans and chilling. You know, but uh, they they got the process going, which was what they were 
kind of put there the thought that they would do. Yeah, there, there's it's not exactly parallel, but there there is a parallel there because the idea that the curators had was that well, being human, they wouldn't be able to help themselves. Yeah, to try and kick this, you know, dysfunctional species uh, in a more productive way uh, direction. And uh, so part of it was that they proved themselves right, but then uh, J and M also proved themselves capable. Yeah. And that, uh, that all, and that also, you know, there's, there, there's several interlocking things going in there too, because there's the element of curators that didn't believe they should be elevated and didn't believe humans should have ever, you know, shouldn't have been curated that that was the correct decision, but they couldn't ignore the fact that J and M, solved this problem that the curators couldn't solve for themselves. And uh, so I thought, considering I had no idea where this thing was going five episodes in advance at any point during the whole process of writing it, I find it kind of incredible that it came together as coherently as it did. Absolutely. I think, yeah, absolutely. It's And, uh, it's and part, part two will be a little different because I actually had to do some planning for part two because part two uh, begins with them fixing the geopolitical situation on earth. And in order to have them do that, I had to figure out what the geopolitical situation on earth was. was. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that was, I, I hinted that there are now only four countries or ours as it were. Uh, and so I had to figure out how that happened and then what those powers are and how they work so that I would know what, you know, basically what J&M or, you know, because they're coming at it. They haven't been on earth for 40 years and 40 years is a very long time in earth politics, even with the stagnation of our technology. Um, and they probably wouldn't even be too bothered uh, by it, except for the fact that technology has stagnated. And this is not a natural thing for humans. They understand that this is, you know, not what humans are about. Something has gone dreadfully wrong as far as us being human. And uh, there were a couple of hints there. But, uh, you know, the, there's actually an interquel, an interlude where, uh, well, there are actually... Uh, couple of them there's a timeline which wouldn't make much sense to read but there's a i wrote the wikipedia article about the geopolitical situation on earth in the year 2160 so i could read that as the beginning of book two or i could read it now as if you have time and are interested to show sort of I was going to say, no, save that for the beginning of book two. I think that'd be okay. a beautiful intro. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that could go either way. And so, okay, you've spoken. So that will be for next time. Well, I also think you need to do it because, I mean, we're not going to be doing the next one for what, like two, three weeks. I yeah, three weeks be, minimum. I think it would be a great intro. That's what I mean. Is on, yeah, a, it's... on a side note, If I was just thinking, like, it is very... The feeling is. Do you not hear me, uh, Roger? I don't think I don't think Roger can hear me. His audio cut out. Roger. 
Roger's headphones have been all all fucky the last couple episodes. And he's trying to fix them. And Am I back? There, there you are. Yeah. Damn thing that it just says like you're disconnected. It's like out of what? Uh, <laughs> just like fuck it, I'm done. Um Yeah. It's like Oh yeah, you're not doing the the Wikipedia thing until next month. We're gonna make sure oh, fuck <laughs> God. It's yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was, yeah. I was, again, I was going to say, yeah, no, just, but that feeling in general, that whole fraternity initiation feeling, that was very much there. Um, yeah. Now that you're mentioning that, that, that will probably hit you uh, in the feels a few more times uh, in a couple of points in the in the total story, because there's a, a couple of other instances of things like that. Yeah. Uh, it's in the in the rest of the cycle. We are now at eighty thousand words. Of a two hundred thousand word total story, um, and uh, yeah, the uh, the other three books are much shorter, mainly because they don't have to lay a lot of the groundwork that book one did. Also, I could have, if I had known where it was going, I would have probably split book one and started book two where the Promethean Uplift Project started, because that would have made its own book on the scale of the other three and they would have all been about equal but yeah that's where it ended up um, but so we're about halfway through the entire series so we should finish the whole thing next year uh, and, uh, and we'll see where it goes um, I, th- I think there's, there, there, there's a few things in there I'm pretty sure you're gonna like. fuck yeah fuck just a hunch I'm excited, and uh, hold. We'll we'll wrap this one up. I'll stop recording in a second. To everybody listening, uh, we will resume with Roger episodes in 2022. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year's to all you assholes. Buy the book, or 2022 will be horrendous for you. So let me stop. Recording 